Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 225, Space Communications. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, astronauts, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight. When it comes to space travel, one of the critical things you'll need, no matter where you are or where you're going, is communications. Things like sending commands, receiving data, and talking to astronauts are all enabled through a network of assets around the globe and in space. On this episode, we're diving into how all of this works. It's managed by NASA's Space Communications and Navigation Program out of NASA's headquarters in Washington, D.C. Joining us from there is Philip Baldwin, the Network Operations Manager. He discusses how this all works and how we're preparing for the future of human spaceflight in low Earth orbit and on the moon as part of NASA's Artemis program. We have a lot to cover, so let's get right into it. Enjoy. T minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launching that light circuit. There she goes. Houston, we have a podcast. Hey, Philip, thanks for uh, coming on Houston. We have a podcast today. Thanks, Gary. I'm uh, happy to be here. I understand I'm the first uh, member of SCAN to join you, so I'm excited to talk a little bit about space communications and navigation. Excited, but you got a big task ahead of you. You got uh, We're going to cover all of SCAN. Uh, at least at least we'll see how as much as w- that we can do in an hour. Um, so, so big task, but, but there's a lot to it, so I think this is going to be a pretty uh, informative episode. Before we get into that, Philip, I wanted to learn a little bit about you um, and and what got you into SCAN, uh, and then that will transition that into just what SCAN is. But first, uh, tell us about your your history and, and your and your expertise that led you to to where you are today. Uh, sounds good. Um, I am the operations manager for SCAN. I, uh, my formal title is network operations program executive. And uh, you know, one of the interesting things is that my dad worked at NASA for about thirty nine years before he retired. And so I always had that NASA-ness, that NASA blood in me where I love the exploration, the science, the technology. And growing up and seeing that really inspired me to, uh, again, to be a NASA person and have that that thought of NASA and what they can achieve. And so naturally, uh, I ended up at NASA. And I've been uh, (laughs) a civil servant for about uh, 11 years. I was a NASA contractor for about five years. And so it's been an enjoyable time, but I'm definitely enjoying the role I'm in now as a uh, operations manager overseeing our communication networks that provide that excellent service to our missions. Wonderful, and we're going to get into that. You've been you've been with NASA for a long time. If you add it up, uh, if I'm doing math on the spot, which I probably shouldn't, you're about about 16 years, and your yep, dad was was years. fantastic, and and uh, and your dad was well over 30. Do you mind me asking what did your what did your dad do for NASA? He uh, had several different jobs, uh, mostly with I'm sure over 30-something years, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So primarily, he worked on uh, the sounding rockets that Wallops uh, launches out of their, uh, their launch facility there. So he worked on the payloads there and the testing. Fantastic. Um, but then did software later in his years, and I remember him traveling around the, the, the globe as well, launching sounding rockets and Marshall Island, Islands and Alaska and other places. And so... Uh, definitely interesting uh, career he had. Interesting, yeah, and an adventurer, it sounds like. Very fantastic. Um, w- were you always in space communications, or did you did you sort of progress to, to, to where you are today? 
No, I started off um, in more of a navigation field, working with uh, GPS and formation flying. I started off working in a formation flying test bed, uh, helping uh, design missions that would use multiple spacecraft flying in formation together. I worked on a, something called a navigator receiver, which is currently flying in the, uh, a mission called MMS, the mm -hmm. Magneto Multiscale Mission. Uh, looking at uh, uh, ionosphere reconnections, and actually uh, broke a record. I believe it's in the Guinness Book of World Records for having the the, the farthest away uh, GPS fix. So this is getting GPS signals on the other side of the Earth. You know, we use it directly when we're driving around in our cars, but uh, satellites use the side lobes, what it's called, where they get signals that are spilling over the side of the Earth, and we're able to use that to navigate our, our satellites. So MMS is using that technology to navigate. Um, and so we're actually looking to use that for lunar support. So uh was in navigation, not in communications. I made the switch over to communications. Very related, very related fields, but uh, definitely uh, different things. And so I had to kind of change my thinking a little bit to focus more on comm and uh, getting data back versus how to fly a satellite autonomously. Well, that's, a, that's actually an interesting point because we're talking about scans, space communications, and navigation. You said they're related, mm -hmm. but, but kind of not. So, so what is that relationship between communications and navigation? Yeah, well, you know, timing is a key component to navigation. You know, you mm -hmm. need to have a signal. You know, GPS uses timing. They use time code to uh, get your position, right? We look at the pulses, and we time the pulses when it was received, and that's how we get the time delays to determine your, your location. And so one way to do navigation for satellites, right, is to get a, a comm link, a, a space comm link to a satellite. And you get the, the time of flight, basically, the, the light time, and that's how you do your, uh, your navigation. So the communications and network parts that we have where we're sending a signal to a satellite is important because it can timestamp that signal reception from the distance uh, to the actual antenna on Earth, and they can use that for, for navigation. And so, though it's not actually sending data, it's just looking at when the signals received. Uh, it's still a, a vital connection there. Hmm. Okay. Timing. Timing is a very, very important aspect. It sounds. Timing like. is the is the key, and the the more precise your clocks are, the better your navigation is. And so, if your oh. clock is inaccurate, you're going to have the wrong timestamp, and you're you could be very, very far off from where you think you are. And so, that that's a, a key component. So what? So that one of the things I think we'll we'll get into here is having very robust systems, robust communication systems. If timing is that important, that means that that means these things have to work, right? That means they can't. Yes, exactly. You can't, you can't be off on that. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, overall, I mean, you, it seems like you said you said you started in navigation, then you sort of melded into the communications world. You're you're, you're exploring both, but I mean, it, it really does sound fascinating, and it sounds like something that you've dedicated a lot of your career to. What is it exactly that, that you love about communications, navigation, this, this aspect of, of space? Well, it's interesting because when you think about things that are infrastructure, things that are foundational, uh, sometimes it, it goes into the background and you don't know what's happening. And that's same with when we think about like our cell phone signals and our, our cell phones, right? We carry our cell phones around and we, we, we basically use them without thinking about how they're connected. It's not even a maybe a, even thought that when you're traveling in your car and you're you're driving along that it's using multiple cell phone towers and that signal's coming through and it's being routed through and you're getting your signal. 
but all you really care about, and frankly, what I care about is just opening up my phone and having uh, uh, my GPS map, having all those apps I use and listening to a podcast. I'm not really worried about, <laughs> okay, is that Comlink working? Uh, is, is, right. Okay, when's the next uh, next tower going to come in view? Is it going to come in view yet? Let me let me wait a little bit to see if the, the tower is coming in view. And so, so basically, it's uh, it's it's an invisible network. Uh, plugging another podcast there, that uh, that really <laughs> provides that infrastructure that you don't really see, but it's vital. And that was very exciting to me when I think about that. How we are providing services that are across the board to all of NASA missions. We're not just working on a single mission. We're working on all of NASA missions. And so when I see the Hubble uh, images come back. When I will see, and hopefully in the near future, the James Webb uh, uh, images come back, I can think to myself, wow, I, I had a part of that. I helped facilitate that coming down to the ground for us to actually see the results of our hard work, of our billions of dollars in investment in space. I have a vital link to that, and I, 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 that makes me proud. I also see the importance of it. So that drove me to, to, to the communications area. And even, you know, thinking in the future, how can I further help the agency's goals, right? That's lunar, that's optical, that's quantum. And so, you know, it's really, that, that's, that's been my driver. That's what makes me excited. And, you know, I think uh, it's not often talked about. So we think about the astronauts landing on the moon. We think about these cool launches. But one thing that's maybe the invisible thing is the things that facilitate and make it successful. Things I'm I'm pulling from this, Philip, is is invisible. Invisible meaning it's it's happening all in the background. But from what it sounds like, is you're touching really all aspects of space. You're touching. I mean, if 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 something's going into space, it has to rely on a communication network to navigate to send data back and forth. You're talking about having having uh, an imprint on the, you know moon missions and and. Uh, telescopes and, and everything. I mean, you're really touching, touching everything. Um, so, so you, it seems like you have like your own fingerprint in, in every mission, um, just because, because of what scan is scan is something that is utilized by, uh, I mean, truly every, everything that we do. Yeah. Yep. And that's, uh, it's, uh, it's a nice, uh, position to be in to be able to support the missions and be there and provide that, that vital link back. You know, uh, <laughs> one thing we always say sometimes is a, a kind of more of an internal thing is without us, it's all space junk. You can't do anything without that link. If you don't have that link back, uh, it's just going to be <laughs> flying in space with nothing, nothing to do. <laughs> that is true. That is true. Uh, cool. So, so let's let's get into it then. I mean, we're 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 sort of and and you were foreshadowing a lot of the future stuff too. So this is this is going to be fantastic. But let's get into let's get into the meat here. What is scan? When, if you had a, if you had a, tell someone walking down the street um, who was interested in what what is this this entire thing, um, what is Scan? Yeah, well, Scan is a program where we're located at headquarters and we oversee our communications networks for NASA. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the near space network and the deep space network. So we support missions that are close to Earth, ones that are flying around in low Earth orbit, like the ISS, uh, the Hubble Space Telescope. We also have uh, the Deep Space Network that supports missions uh, like uh, the Mars landing, Perseverance, uh, and things that are going out like Voyager 1 and 2. Uh, it's just a vital link in the communications uh, connection to these missions that provide that data. 
uh, connecting the, this, the, the science, connecting space, connecting our exploration down to earth for the general public. And so we provide that link, we provide that communications, we help the missions navigate and chart their ways to exploration. That's, uh, for so, me, that's scan in a nutshell. It's that, 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 that vital link. Perfect. Yeah, if I was in an elevator, that would be the elevator pitch right there. And it sounds like there's there's two major networks uh, that are a part of SCAN. One that you said near space and the other one was deep space. I'm assuming they are different because they use different assets. Is that a good is that a good interpretation? Yeah, that's correct. You know, we uh, recently did a reorganization for our networks. The deep space network okay. was as is, but last year we changed a few things around. We are looking forward to the future, which I'll talk about a little later, probably in the, about commercialization. Yeah. But previously, we had the near-Earth network, and we had the space network. We had mm. and the near-Earth network had smaller apertures or smaller antennas on the ground that talked to our low-Earth orbit uh, and polar-orbiting uh, satellites. And we had a space network that used the, the tracking data relay the satellite uh, system. Uh, we combined those uh, to be a more uh, focused network to focus on low Earth orbit. And we have mm. a deep space network that remain the same focusing on deep space uh, assets and support. And so our one really focuses on close the moon and closer to the earth. And one's looking farther out the moon and beyond. So let's let's first dive into near space network. You were sort of alluding to it's it's uh, it's a mixture of some ground stations, antennas and, and, and assets and uh, and I believe some uh, satellites in orbit. I think maybe and Tedris in particular I know is geosynchronous. So so what yep. are, what are those assets that make up the near space network and how how are they talking to each other? So first uh, the the ground assets we call them direct to earth. So that's just uh, the the ground assets we have and those are a mixture of government owned uh, assets and antennas mm -hmm. and also we heavily use um, commercial antennas as well and so oh, okay yeah right now it's about a mixture of 50 50 right in our support we use uh about 50 percent uh, commercial and 50 percent government and uh in the future we're going to be moving toward a near 100 percent use of commercial assets of uh direct earth ground stations and so we're looking forward to are that. they all u.s commercial assets or are they a mixture are, are we are we in like a? is this like an international um, it's international. international thing. Yeah, we. Okay. Yeah, I yeah, figured use, right because uh, you're talking about yep. everything around the Earth. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, we want to have full coverage, right? So you have to make sure you can see all parts of the sky. Um, yeah. And so we have to have an international component to cover that full view of uh, the the space. And so, if I were to zoom in on a on a ground station, we're talking about ground stations, mm -hmm. right? So, so what makes up a ground station? How is it? How is it run? Who's who's running the thing? Um, you know, what what are the are they giant dishes? What what do they even look like? Uh, just focusing on a ground station. Yeah, and in in respect to a near space network, a ground station basically is a aperture or antenna, a large dish. Uh, okay. The largest we have for the near space network is about eighteen meters. And so not not too large, but uh, definitely a good size to support lunar distances uh, down to like a seven meter or a five meter uh, a dish to to uh, support um, some other polar missions. And so what we have at the ground station is uh, the dish. We have uh, back end electronics, you know, do all the processing. So once we receive the signal from a satellite, we have to decode it. We have to process it, ensure that we received it, make sure there's a, uh, no errors in the data. 
we have good timing systems, as I alluded to uh, before. We have to have good timing to make sure that oh, yeah. everything's in sync, right? And so uh, that, that's all a key component. Um, we're not fully automated everywhere, so we do have a, a, a crew at the, the sites, operators, who uh, will view the signals and respond if there's any issues and make sure that things are running okay. Okay. Um, and then when, when you're sending them around, is that also through, uh, is it, is it all through different radio waves or are there, are there, uh, ground umbilicals or anything that you're sending, like wiring, um, some of the signals to, to any different locations like mission control or anything? Yeah. So, you know, as we know, the internet has where it's at now, right? The, the, we have connections all over a lot of them, fiber connections all over the globe. And we, we, Send that data, connect it back to various locations. Uh, DSN is a little different. Their space network is more of a decentralized uh, system. So we we send it to mission operations centers, ground control, science operations centers. It pretty much goes to wherever the endpoint or the the end customer is at, basically, right? Because our our mission really is to get the data to the scientists, to the owners of the satellite, so they can process that data and provide it, right? We want it, the Hubble. Right, if it's sending a, a picture down or an image down, we don't want to hold on to it. We want to give it to uh, scientists to process it as quick as possible, and and they can use it, and the public can see it. That's 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 what we consider success when it's uh, available and it inspires and it it makes progress. So you're you're really sending a lot of the signals. Are are you storing anything or or saving or archiving any of the signals just at, at some of the ground stations or or set when you send them over to different respective sites or anything like that? Or is it really just yeah, routing the, routing signals? Yeah, depending on the the mission concept we have. You know, mm. for most missions we do a storage for seven days up to thirty days just in case, right? Just to provide the extra redundancy in case something happens, we have to replay it and send it back out. Or there's any mm-hmm. kind of issues, we, we will store it for a little bit. Um, we, we route it right away. So a lot of the stuff that we do is real time. So as soon as we receive it, we're processing it and sending it as quick as we can. So near real time, I should say. Um, but we do store it uh, for a little bit just in case there's any issues in the, in the transmission back to the, the, the end point. Are the ground stations operated 24-7? So you got rotating crews always monitoring something? Yes, yes. We are a 24-7 operation. Um, we're always on console. There's always someone who can answer the call if there's an issue. You know, spacecraft emergencies happen just <laughs> randomly. We, we don't know when one's going to happen. It happens yeah. all times of the day. And all they're not that often, but when it happens, someone needs to be there to respond. So what's the, I mean, some, are some of these uh, ground stations are in major areas or, or are they in remote areas? Um, and, and what I'm getting to here is I'm trying to think about what it's like in the life of a, of a operator at one of these ground stations. Um, <laughs> you know, you know I, I, I'm, I'm trying, I think they would be in very interesting places around the globe. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious on, on what their lives are like in some of these remote areas. Well, I'm, I'm glad you bring that up because one of the things that we are very thankful for is our operators. Uh, not all of our locations, actually majority of our locations are in more of a remote area due to we wanted to stay away from, uh, again, signals, right? We don't want the ground <laughs> signals, cell phones, you know, exactly. TV, anything else to interfere with the signals we're getting from space. And so we try to keep them away from major cities and, and uh, populated areas. And so a lot of the uh, operators will have to live in areas that 
maybe aren't the the prime real estate. <laughs> right. But they do have to uh, travel out sometimes to get to the site. And one thing I want we're, we're very thankful for is during COVID, we didn't shut mm. down. While the world locked down, while the world had to retreat for safety to be inside their, our houses as we were, the operators every day since March 2020 went into work every single day to protect uh, not only life, we talked about the ISS and the mm-hmm. space station, but also the billions and billions of dollars of investment that the U.S. government made in space. And we're thankful for that that sacrifice they made because they they made that sacrifice to continue to help NASA and to protect NASA's assets. And so That's that was a great sacrifice. We're happy. And me as a manager, it's it, sometimes I I'm like, oh man, it's a shame. I'm working from home and they have to go to work. And so I can only be grateful mm-hmm. for the effort they put in to continue to to support us and to go into work. This is you know ever since the very beginning of the pandemic. We haven't lost a mission. We haven't had any major impacts due to COVID. And uh, we're, we're thankful. That's a great part due to the operators. That's fantastic. Yeah, and, and that, that's exactly why I wanted to bring it up. I wanted to highlight, I wanted to highlight exactly that um, just because of the effort that it takes to, to, to keep the mission going. Um, we're, we're talking about the ground stations and the, and the folks that are staffing that, and we're talking about some of the ground assets uh, that are part of the near space network um, I know there are also satellites. Uh, one of them that we talk about a lot in human spaceflight because it's used um, on the International Space Station are the TDRS satellites, tra- tracking data mm-hmm. and relay. Um, so, so what are those assets? Yeah, so we have uh, you know several satellites, uh, and uh, we have a couple that are uh, supporting you know basically provide constant contact, uh, eye in the sky to uh, missions like ISS and Hubble and others. And they basically, just like the, the name says, tracking data relay, they uh, mm-hmm. track uh, uh, lower orbit missions and relay the data back to the, the ground stations or back to the mission ops centers or the mission control centers. And so we have them located around the, uh, around the globe and uh, in, in locations that will provide a constant 100% coverage. And so as a ISS mission uh, or a, a Hubble mission is, is orbiting the planet, they have a constant connection to a satellite in geo geo uh, synchronous orbit. Now, a difference from a ground station than from a satellite is that a ground station requires a satellite to be directly above it. That's why we call it direct to Earth. It has to be a a single connection straight from the satellite down to the ground. Now, mm-hmm. if you're orbiting the planet, and if you look at an image of the Earth, one thing you'll see is that it's mostly water. And so we don't have ground stations <laughs> in the water. Actually, you know, in the Apollo days, we actually had ships, right? We actually had ships that had antennas on top of them, and they would provide that those gaps in the ocean. We don't have those anymore. So what that means is that uh, a, a mission is heavily reliant on a pass, we call it, over a particular ground station. And that can be problematic. You can imagine the, the, for human spaceflight, to be in a vehicle, you're in the ISS, and all of a sudden you don't have connection, and you're just there alone. You're saying you're trying to transmit data down, trying to talk to family members. Um, you want to have a constant connection. You don't want to have it breaking up every 30 minutes, every 90 minutes. And so that TGRS spacecraft, which was really focused at one point for the shuttle, 
to have that constant communication to the shuttle missions uh, mm-hmm. provides that that 24/7 communication link that ground station could not provide based on geographics. And so it's, it's a vital asset. It's been heavily used by the human spaceflight community and it continues to be used with the visiting vehicles to ISS. And mm-hmm. uh, it's used for nearly all government launches uh, from the U.S. soil. And so it's a, it's a critical asset and it's been uh, used for many, many years, very successful and highly reliable. Yeah, we talk about it all the time when we cover our missions. They, they for exactly that reason. Um, yeah, there are there are still gaps when they hand over from satellite to satellite, mm-hmm. but they're minimal, right? You're not talking about when yep. when you said 90 minutes. Yeah, that yeah, they're they're nowhere near that. So, um, yeah, exact and exactly what you're saying. They're critical to human spaceflight. Um, are there other space or ground assets that I'm missing that are part of the near space network? No, that's, that covers most of the near space network. You know, we do have a, a couple of university partnerships, but we are looking at expanding our, our network to yeah. cover. One of the things we're seeing in the science community is a, is a growing of, uh, of small sats. And so when you first mm-hmm. think about the, the near space network and how it was created, right, it came from the, the old Apollo days. And we, we didn't have, uh, you know, the focus was on giant flagship missions, large flagship missions, right? And so now when you think about small sats, you're, you're like, okay, well, how are we going to support these small sats? And we have these these antennas and ground stations designed for large missions like, you know, James Webb, like uh, ISS. And, you know, and so what we're, what we're looking at now is how we can also include in our, in our support these uh, smaller satellites because, you know, as we get constellations, and you know we we've heard about the constellations that are doing being or that are occurring in the commercial world. You know NASA too will be doing uh, constellations for science collection, and so we're looking at how we can increase the number of apertures we have on the ground, the number of antennas, and be able to provide that support to these small sats, which wasn't a a, a philosophy we had previously as we looked at just kind of one-off missions and a single spacecraft. But now we're looking at maybe launching ten science spacecraft that have one mission goal and so uh it's, it's a different paradigm and we're, we're adjusting to support that different paradigm but because it sounds like technology is improving and and we can fill in those those gaps of communication by with an efficient method that's kind of what it sounds like it sounds like it's you're uh it, it's not you know you don't need those uh, giant satellites as much you can rely on much smaller much smaller satellites to do the job so sounds sounds uh, very efficient in that manner yeah, and that's what the science mission directorate has been looking at. There's, you know, technology has improved to the extent where you can get a lot of science with smaller, uh, lower investment, frankly, um, in, into these small sets that are able to provide great science. You can maybe launch more of them, and the risk is lower, right? So if we lose a small set, mm-hmm. you know, it's still a loss, but your investment is much lower. And so there's an area where NASA can take a little bit more risk and maybe advance a little higher and get uh, some more science and great science based on using these small sats. And so, yeah, it's a different paradigm, but it's one that's uh, been definitely spurred by technology. Fascinating. Um, is it, since we're still on the near space network, I, I, I want to get to the deep space network first, but one of the things that's on my mind is we're talking about signals, right? And you're, and you're mm-hmm. talking about signals being sent uh, from ground stations, TDRS satellites, um, how, how we always see it, and when we're t- covering human spaceflight and mission control, is 
uh, different bands of communication. We see S-band communication, KU-band, mm -hmm. KA-band sometimes. What are these yep. different types of uh, communication signals that we're talking about? Yeah, so what we're talking about is the radio frequency, is electromagnetic spectrum, and basically just a wavelength of light. And so basically a, a higher frequency, you know, we have the higher bands, and the lower frequencies, we have the lower bands. Like S-band is the, the lower end, and Ka, when you get in the K-band, it's a higher frequency. And so what these wavelengths of light allow you to do is to encode more data on a, on a signal. And so when you have a, a lower frequency, you can't encode as much data in the, in, the, in the signal. And so when you have these higher frequencies, your waves are basically going, uh, are close together. You're able to encode more data on the signal. And so that's why you'll hear for, let's say for human spaceflight and ISS, KU band or KA band, where we're able to give a lot more data to the ISS using these higher frequencies. Now for things like, you know, general housekeeping, we call it for, for uh, satellites. That's when you're just monitoring the satellite, checking if it's okay, or the lights on, the heaters on, just general housekeeping, basically. Uh, you can use lower, lower frequencies because you don't have that much data. You're just checking if a, a, a switch is toggled. That doesn't require a lot of data. But when mm -hmm. you want to see 4K video, <laughs> when you want to <laughs> see that high definition video, you need the higher frequency. You need yep. that higher bandwidth, which we get in the higher frequency RF. You're talking about the, the lower frequency, higher frequency. I think fr from what I've seen, and, and maybe maybe you know I'm misinterpreting this, the, the S-band, it's a lower frequency, so you don't have much much uh, as much data, but it, you seem to maintain uh, connections for longer periods of time for whatever mm -hmm. reason, but S-band always seems to go through. So that one... You know, in terms of what you're talking about is are the lights on and everything like that. I could see a lot of that using S-band because a lot of them are critical systems and we can monitor them. I think voice is on S-band. Uh, but KU-band, you know, our video goes out from the space station every once in a while is the higher frequency stuff. Is that true? Is there more, is there any relation between the, the wavelength and how much coverage you're getting? Yeah, so one of the things that probably didn't come across uh, in my, in my, my comment there was that for S-band, when we say housekeeping, that really is the, the vital uh, link. That's the station control, right? That's where you're controlling uh -huh. uh, vital systems. That's the life support. That's the, the, you know, the power systems. That's the checking the, the, the solar panels, checking the, the altitude, the, the control of the actual spacecraft, right? ISS is actually a spacecraft, right? Um, and so that's where you get those connections. And that's where we, that's, that's why this one's connected, you know, <laughs> probably more than the KA or KU band. Uh, and that's, that's the key part where you need to actually control and, and operate the spacecraft. So that's really the part that's used for the, the vital telemetry. KA and KU, the higher frequency ones are the ones that are maybe more visible to the general public. The ones that are like the videos, the, the phone calls, mm -hmm. the, ex, you yeah. know, exciting experiments, the docking that happens. That's the, the higher frequency ones, but the ones that, really on a day-to-day keeping the station running and safe for humans, that, that's the S-band link. So that one you will see connected uh, far more often and having that more constant contact. Okay, so it's, it's more so about what these, you know, what the communication is, is doing. Because the S-band is, is a signal for very vital systems, we'll, we'll have that connection more often because it, it's just a critical thing that we need to monitor. So, so we need that, that more. 
Okay, right. that, that makes more sense. All right, so we talked a lot about near space network. Let's get into deep space. Now, uh, what are the assets that make up the deep space network? So we have three locations. We have Goldstone, we have uh, uh, Madrid in Spain, Canberra in Australia. And uh, each of these locations have uh, very large antennas. So we talked about the near space network having apertures the size of the largest, about 18 meters. Uh, we're looking at for the deep space network, the largest we have there is a 70 meter antenna. That's uh, about the size of an 11 story building. Large, <laughs> large antenna. <laughs> and we have also about four 34 meter antennas at each site. And so those are just very larger apertures, which we need because when we talk about the things we connect to in space with these apertures, these antennas, uh, we're talking about things like Voyager, Voyager 1 and 2, mm -hmm. which are way out there, billions of miles. And, and, and that signal we get back from them is so, so small that you need a large disk just to collect, just to collect the, the, the signal. It's like a light bulb in your refrigerator. Well, now it's probably LEDs in your refrigerator, but <laughs> back in the old <laughs> days when you had light bulbs, it was about the power of a light bulb coming back. And that's just hardly anything. So faint. You need these large dishes like a 70 meter to be able to pick up on that signal. And so, you know, we, we use these uh, mostly for things like Mars. That's probably the most visible things we do. But we also support, you know, like things like Juno, which is supporting uh, looking at the, uh, Jupiter and um, other missions that uh, had a great uh, history of exploration um, in, throughout the years. And uh, so, so it's really those three major sites on the ground with super huge antennas that make up the deep space network, and they're a critical asset to, to fill in those gaps that just the near space network, they, they couldn't pick up on signals that faint, or, or it, it doesn't have anything to do with distance either, like uh, if like picking up some of those cool uh, photos, those high-resolution photos we get from some of the Mars rovers or anything like that? Yeah, distance plays a, a large part in it, right? That's just mm -hmm. uh, being so far away, the power uh, that you actually get by the time it reaches Earth is much, much less. And so uh, you really need a large aperture to get to collect that signal and get to process it. And, you know, um, it's a, it's a critical uh, difference, right? Because one may think that, you know, uh, you could just, a signal is a signal as it, as it, as it is, right? There's no, no change. But as you go farther and farther out, right, the, the power that it takes to transmit that energy, basically you're transmitting energy in the form of uh, radio frequency, it, it, it gets smaller. And so by the time it hits mm -hmm. the dish, it's a small, small signal. For... For human missions, just because this is the the world that that we're in, in, in at Johnson, um, when it comes to Artemis missions on the Moon, uh, would we use more near space, more deep space, or some combination of the two? Uh, we're going to use a combination. In, in the recent years, we've had uh, used the deep space network mostly for things like Mars, uh, for deep space exploration. Years ago, in the Apollo days. The Deep Space Network was used for the, the, the lunar landings. So now we're going to, after 50-some years, more than 50 years, we're going to go back and uh, use Deep Space Network again for uh, Artemis. And we're going to use a combination of the Deep Space Network, but also some assets from the Near Space Network. 
and we're looking at our loading and capacity. And one thing we constantly have to do uh, at SCAN is to ensure that we have enough capacity to support all the missions, right? We can't just focus on human spaceflight, just science. We have to make sure we have enough capacity to support everyone. So we're adding additional uh, apertures in the near space network, uh, 18 meters, more 18 meters, to be able to allow for um, uh, additional capacity to support Artemis. As we probably talked about, Artemis is going to have a lot of things going on at the moon. There's going to be vehicles, oh, yeah. there's going to be astronauts, there's going to be landings, there's going to be a gateway, there's going to be a lot of activity going on, and it needs to have a connection to a, a, a communication asset. And so we're looking at expanding out, but the Deep Space Network will be our initial primary support for our Artemis missions coming up. That's such a, I mean, I mean, it's just fascinating to think about. Um, it really shows, because really I think it's a signal of, of just where we are using a deep space network for human missions. I just think that's just so cool. And that's that's uh, that's coming up here very soon. Um, I wanted to transition here to talking about just, okay, now that we've we've really explored in depth what makes up SCAN, are the, the near space network and the deep space network, what are these things? Um, I want to get into more on how how it works, how this is how this network is run and managed, because um, I think you know for for us at Johnson, especially the near space network with Tedris and everything, one of the things that I'm aware of is and and you've made abundantly clear, um, uh, Philip is is that we're not the only player in town when it comes to using these <laughs> assets. Uh, this is a, this is very much a shared asset. There are a lot of players uh, in low Earth orbit that are fighting for for time, you know, and and they want to send their signals through the near space network. So how is this managed with all of the different missions going on? How do you manage the data that's flowing among all the assets? And it, because it seems to be quite a lot. Yeah, and so we you know we have a great scheduling team that looks at uh, all the requests that come in and to ensure that everybody is meeting mission objectives. You know, our primary thing is to focus on mission objectives. So early on, we, we sign a, a, a agreement with the missions to say, okay, this is how much data we're able to provide you. Will this meet your mission objective? And we ensure we can cover that, looking at how many assets we have, how much capacity we have in our networks and loading. And we, we, we achieve that through our day-to-day -day scheduling. And so when we get our schedules, we, you know, weeks in advance, we, we schedule up the missions. But... Um, occasionally missions ask for more data, which is fine. And we'll fill the capacity with what we are able to, to provide to them to be able to give them more science return. But it's a juggling act because we only have a finite amount of uh, <laughs> ground assets and space assets. So we yeah. have to find a nice balance between what we're able to provide. And looking at the Artemis, we, we looked at and said, okay, wow, we're going to be, we're going to be behind. We don't have enough, uh, uh, capable uh, systems to support it. So we're actually looking at increasing a number of assets to be able to support it. And, you know, just to kind of go off on a little tangent here, uh, back to Artemis, you know, when we looked mm -hmm. at even the far side coverage, not every part of the moon sees the ground. So how are we going to cover all of the missions that are going to be exploring the far side of the, the moon? So we're also now looking at a lunar relay to be able to relay data, just like Tedris relays data mm -hmm. around the globe we're looking at a lunar relay to relay data back from the far side of the moon uh, back down to earth and so we constantly have to look at the coverage look at the gaps where do we need more and you know we can't do this in a um, we have to plan ahead because it takes time to build up uh, capacity 
So we do projections mm-hmm. out 10 years and we're even doing like a projection for teachers out to 2030 right now to try to see if there's gaps and what we're going to do. And so we really have to plan ahead to make sure that before the mission launches that we can support it. Um, but our scheduling team does a great job of uh, making sure everybody's needs are met. Yeah. Okay. So that's how, that's how you're managing it. And you're anticipating just, uh, you're talking about what you're, what you're planning for. It sounds like Philip is, is, a significant increase in utilization of scan and and the, and the various networks. Uh, it sounds like deep space is one of the things because you're trying to gear up for uh, more presence on and around the moon. Um, even even near space, you were talking about some of the small sats as well. So, yep. uh, just just in your career with scan, have you seen utilization of some of the assets change, uh, go up, go down, stay the same? Um, just and, and and is that factoring into some of the considerations that you're thinking about when planning assets? Yeah, as we so we talked previously talked about, you know, one of the things uh, that we're seeing increasing is the use of higher frequencies K band, and so right. we have a couple of missions coming on that are going to be actually three missions that are in the near term that will be coming on. So it's going to be K band polar orbiting missions. Uh, one of the missions is going to be 3.5 gigabits per second. That's the most data rate, the highest data rate we've done at NASA. And so uh, that's going to be a significant increase in data. And so we're building a K-band uh, network basically to increase that capacity. That's going to be completed next year. And the mission launches a year after that. And so I've seen that increase and that was a, a jump, right? So we went from our fastest, our highest data rate from 300 megabits per second for K-band to 3.5 gigabits. And so large leap in what we're able to provide, but also it means we need more uh, systems that can provide that support. So yeah, I've definitely mm-hmm. seen that increase and it's it's uh, it's still coming. <laughs> There's more misses on the way that are gonna be increasing their need. So you have all of these different players that, that wanna have this asset, you're planning ahead for that. You have to have some, in terms of the management, right? Back to the management conversation. Mm-hmm. You have to have some sort of standard for all of these different uh, all of these different players in space that want to use these assets. Um, so do, do you have data standards that say, okay, you know, we'll, we'll provide a signal for you, but, but here's what we require from you. Yeah. You know, we, we have different data standards that we use. One of them, uh, uh, a few of them that we, we use to make sure that everything is interoperable, right? We work with the international communities, the government organizations to ensure that uh, the type of signals that are used are ones that work with our systems. Uh, you know, occasionally we will use other agencies' systems as well. We have cross-support agreements, they're called, with uh, the European Space Agency. I think we just signed one with the uh, JAXA, the Japanese uh, Space Agency. And sometimes we'll want to use their assets. When we look out and say, okay, well, we have a conflict. We don't have enough capacity to support this mission. Uh, we'll ask ESA, hey, can we can we borrow one of your antennas for a, little, for a number of hours um, and so it's important that they have the same standards we have, because if we can't talk the same language, <laughs> then it's not going to work. And so we do have uh-huh. a lot of these standards built into our systems, and we ensure that the missions, when they're built and created, have the same data standards that uh, allow for interoperable uh, communication. Well, that's a big, big component of what we're trying to do at SCAN is to push for interoperability. As more uh, folks are looking toward uh, commercialization of space, one of the things that's a concern is whether or not we'll all be able to talk together. You imagine, again, going back to a cell phone, when we, uh, back years ago, when you went to a different country, 
you had to either buy a SIM card or buy a phone when you were at that country because your phone just did not work. Mm-hmm. But now you pretty much just go to another country and you get the international plan and you're able to connect. That's because mm-hmm. your your phone is interoperable with multiple networks. And the cell phone industry has adopted that model where phones can interoperate between multiple networks. That's the same thing we want uh, here on Earth and out in space, that the, even the commercial providers can interoperate with each other. And that's the thing we are promoting and encouraging industry to to take on. And we ourselves are making sure that our systems are, are open, that we are able to, we, we publish what our data standards are, so it's going to interoperate with us. And we're looking at industry to, to follow that same precedence so we can all be uh, great stewards of this uh, great community we have in space. So, so let, let's go let's go into commercialization then because um, yeah, it seems like this is this is a very important uh, topic for what is going to be the future of space communication you talked about transitioning uh, we're talking about a lot of assets that are NASA NASA owned and operated and, and that that sort of thing but it's not, you sort of uh, foreshadowed in the beginning of this conversation that we are aiming to go 100% commercial so uh, talk talk about the the logic behind that and and just the, the process and, and and even what that's going to look like in terms of how space communications will be operated in the future. Well, uh, you know, looking at commercialization and what we're trying to do for the future, one of the things we've seen in the industry over the last, uh, I'd say, you know, ten maybe fifteen years, is that there's a lot more commercial systems that are available. Whereas we can now can be one of many. We've heard that term before when we talked about the commercial crew. But it, the reality is, it's true. We can leverage what exists in the commercial market. It wasn't the case years ago, but now it is. And so, uh, you know, we've been asked, well, okay, why are we building when we could buy? And it makes sense. We can work on the, the next thing. We can work on advancing technology. But if there's a service that exists, it, it doesn't hurt us just to buy that service. And so we're looking at commercializing our first, our direct-to-earth, um, our ground stations, uh, simply because we've already about for about 20 last 20 years, we've already had a mixture of commercial plus government. So for us to just, you know, pretty much increase the commercial portion of that, that's a fairly simple uh, route to take. And so we're, and the number of providers that exist in the commercial world has grown significantly. So we're able to leverage that investment that the commercial world has done and, and just buy services. And so we'll be looking to do that uh, in the next couple of years here as we migrate on to a more commercial model. Uh, for Tedris, you know, a little more difficult when we talk about the relay satellites that exist in the commercial world, mostly designed for terrestrial use, right? And originally designed for a lot of them planes. When you go on your plane, now it's pretty straightforward to get internet. Uh, boats, cruises, uh, remote areas. A lot of these commercial assets are designed for that. Not so much for spacecraft as uh, orbiting the Earth very fast. <laughs> and so yeah. uh, what we're looking at, we, we have a project called the Communications uh, um, Services Project that's looking at how to use these existing commercial assets and uh, use them uh, to support NASA, future NASA missions. And so that's a, it's a challenge, right? We need to make sure that they can work with our systems. Because when looking at TGRIS, we don't currently have plans to replenish our TGRIS uh, fleet. So as the TGRIS spacecraft age, right, they'll be decommissioned. And so we're looking at a flyout 
of TGRIS, roughly in the 2035, mid 2030s, roughly, where we won't have enough to support all of our NASA objectives. And so what that means is that we need to have a another option. And right now we're looking at a commercial option to replace TGRIS in the future. And so that's going to be a paradigm shift. We've all loved TGRIS. We loved the way it's done for the many, many years supporting shuttle and now ISS. But uh, we believe the commercial industry can get uh, uh, to a place where it can support NASA as well. And so we're, we're looking at that now and we'll be, we'll be working with industry to ensure that is the possibility. It seems to be a, a theme definitely across uh, much of uh, NASA and, and spaceflight is um, this, this idea of commercialization. It's shared with a lot of our efforts in low Earth orbit uh, with the assets there. Even we're talking space stations, right? The next space stations, yep. the plans right now are for those to be commercial. Transportation, already commercial. Cargo, already commercial. <laughs> um, so it just it seems to be a model it seems to be a model that 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 works and that will be building on the future for the moon. It's going to be a mix of international and commercial partnerships, and that's uh, it seems to be the the way of the future. So you know, let's let's all hop on board uh, for for all for all aspects of it. Um, but you mentioned some that's of the right. challenges, right, when, when it comes to uh, when it comes to commercialization, especially in scan. And so I think. Uh, you know, going forward and planning for that seems like you got a, a decent a, a decent timeline here to plan for that. What are the major considerations from a, from a NASA perspective on wh what are the things that are we are going to care about as we transition to a commercial model? For example, main, maintaining standards that can be utilized with all different commercial aspects and all different providers uh, to make sure that we can meet our our objectives. Yeah, I mean, when you when you look at the commercial world right now, not so much in the like I mentioned before the cell phone industry, but more of in the space industry of the the satellites that have been the mega constellations that have been launched uh, recently, those are not interoperable. You can't use one or the other, right? You can either or, and so we're we're looking at ways to mitigate the risk of uh, something we call vendor lock-in when you're you launch a satellite. And it can only communicate to one type of commercial asset. And then you're stuck to it. <laughs> you're basically locked in. That's a concern. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if, uh, you know, not only with the, the price increases that could happen, if there's a major failure in that, in that commercial company. Uh, we want to make sure we're able to communicate and interoperate with all the assets that are available to us. So we're looking at ways to mitigate that risk. Looking at pushing, as I mentioned before, data standards that are open pushing interoperability. And even on the back end on our side, we're working with missions and designing a, a, a wideband receiver, what we call a multilingual receiver, because we want to talk many languages. We want to talk to company X, company Y. We don't want to just be able to talk to one particular commercial company. We want to be able to talk to all of the commercial companies. And so we're working on ways to allow for that and to build our systems at the very least to be able to have the flexibility to talk to different signals and data standards. And so that's how we're trying to mitigate that risk, but also work with industry to show the importance of interoperable uh, communications. And so uh, we're, we're working hard on that and we're, we're, we're having engagements as we speak with industry on this and we think we'll be successful. It's, it's very, yeah, it is a challenge, but it does sound very exciting. And, and I, love, I love your positivity, Philip, for sure. Um, <laughs> I want, I want, I want to end with this, uh, because one of the things you mentioned was when, when, especially when you were talking about commercialization 
is when it comes to the operations. That's something easily that that it makes sense to transition to a commercial model because there are these assets that exist. So we just have to maintain that interoperability and, and, and we can move forward to that sort of model. But you still talked about maintaining the the ability and, and the efforts to push technology. And it sounds like that's one of those things at, at SCAN that, that's pretty important is making sure that you're always a step ahead and thinking about the latest and greatest technologies. Um, if you can, and with this, give us a preview of some of the exciting technologies in the space communication and navigation network that may be coming to us in the near future. Yep, sounds great. You know, when people said we're commercializing and they, they, where they hear about us commercializing, they really get uh, nervous thinking that we're shutting down shop. <laughs> and that's not the case. You know, our model is changing, our paradigm is changing, but um, we're going to look toward the future. We're going to look at things that are going to advance technology and provide better data, better connectivity, higher speeds. You know, at some point, we're going to want 8K video <laughs> from, the, from the moon or from Mars. And so we'll need things like uh, optical. We talk about the RF and KA band. Yeah, it's great, but optical takes you to a whole new level of uh, connectivity. That's when you can have that high definition video. And so we're looking at optical communications. We have a a, a lunar um, sorry laser communications relay demonstration that's going to launch in a few days here. That's going to be one of our first, or actually our first optical relay satellite uh, that will launch and be able to test with the ISS in the future. And so I'll prove out that concept and we'll go into optical operations. We're going to do an optical experiment on the Orion for Artemis 2. That's currently planned. And so we are looking toward the future and pushing that technology. But piggybacking on the optical, there's also mm-hmm. even more advanced things we can do, uh, such as quantum communications, have that entanglement. We're able to entangle uh, photons as we have that optical communication. We're going to use that for the quantum entanglement. And so now we're looking at how they even do quantum communications in the future, which will be a game changer for when we look at Mars exploration and human exploration of Mars. And so we're not we're not going to stay back in the past. We're going to look toward the future. And we have some a lot of groundbreaking things that I think are going to change the paradigm for what we have today. And that's where we want to be. As NASA, that's where we want to be. We want to be on the forefront of technology, pushing the bounds. All the stuff that we do will benefit will benefit the U.S. public. And so we're really looking forward to being able to provide that. And, and not only the U.S. public, the globe, as we worked on GPS, navigating satellites with GPS, using GPS on the moon or GNSS, using multiple assets that can help us navigate, using things like DTN, it was the Delay or Disruption Tolerant Networking. That's another technology that is going to allow us to do something like uh, the internet is on the ground, why can't we have that in space? Again, why do I have to worry about what our connection is? Let's just have a, a internet-like system in space. That's another future technology that we want to have, where a astronaut can just send something, doesn't have to worry about where it's going to go. Uh, a mission could just communicate to a node, and it just gets back to the endpoint. And so we are really looking uh, heavily at what we can do to uh, make this all even more visible <laughs> uh, in the background, but provide great service and coverage. We also want to make sure that our future engineers, those coming in with these great ideas, these younger generation also is excited. And so we also have an internship program that we do, the SCAN internship program that allows for us to uh, train these future engineers so they can think outside the box. And some of them have thought about things that were way outside the box. And we're like, oh my goodness, this is great. Let's, let's use this. And so 
that's also been a benefit to make sure that our future generation is excited and can carry on the, the NASA purpose and goals. And so a lot of great things are happening. We're pushing the balance of technology. We're going to commercialize and we'll continue to provide that great support to all of NASA's missions and even the future Artemis uh, missions that will be happening soon. Philip, that was, uh, what a way to end, because I feel like what I want to do is just steal another hour of your time and and dive deep (laughs) into all of those different crazy ideas, quantum and uh, and the delay uh, disruption tolerant. Uh, I mean, you're talking some awesome technologies. And so I feel like we need to, I I feel like we need to do a follow-up one just to dive even deeper. But Honestly, Philip, this was a fascinating conversation on on scan and just everything about it and what we know, what how it's run today and just uh, what we're thinking about for the future. And, and it seems like a very exciting world. I can I can tell your passion is it, you're very passionate about this world. And, and I can see why, uh, because it seems like it's, it's, it's very, very exciting. So Philip Baldwin, I very much appreciate your time today to talk about SCAN, and uh, I really hope that we can have you on in the future because uh, those teasers at the end are are just too much for me to handle right now. So, But I do appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on. (laughs) Yeah, thank thank you for having me. I really appreciate it, and uh, it was a good conversation. Hey, thanks for sticking around. I really believe we just skimmed the surface of SCAN, but I definitely definitely learned a lot today, and uh, I hope you did too. Check out nasa.gov for the latest, and from there you can find a link to the space communication and navigation, or just search NASA SCAN. We're on nasa.gov slash podcasts, one of many NASA podcasts that we have across the agency. If you want to uh, check out some of our episodes, go there, and you can listen to us in no particular order. You can also talk to us on social media. We're on the Johnson Space Center pages of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea or ask a question for us, and just make sure to mention it is for us at Houston We Have a Podcast. This episode was recorded on November 30th, 2021. Thanks to Alex Perriman, Pat Ryan, Norma Rand, Belinda Polito, and Al Feinberg. And of course, thanks again to Philip Baldwin for taking the time to come on the show. Give us a rating and feedback on whatever platform you're listening to us on and tell us what you think of our podcast. We'll be taking a short break for the holidays, but don't worry. We'll have all new content coming in 2022. See you then.